Hi there, welcome to Somewhat Overfitting, the podcast about data science and digital transformation. My name is Jonas and every other week I'm interviewing people in the field of data science on how they are using data in their day-to-day -day business life. Today I'm talking to Andrea Rohrer and Matthew Patrick from the Utah Education Policy Center, short UPEC, at the University of Utah. Andrea is the director of the Utah Education Policy Center and Matt works as a data scientist there. But I'm going to let both of them introduce themselves in just a minute. Andrea and I talked about what the UPEC is doing and how they are using data at the moment. As they are using a lot of data generated in the offline world, we talked about the problems the UPEC encounters in the data collection process. This led us to the question on how best to prepare an offline data collection process. We also talked about how the UPEC is handling the highly sensitive data of students and what Andrea and Matt think about using such data when planning a more or less personalized curriculum. So let's get started. Andrea and Matt, thanks so much for joining today. And both of you are working at the Utah Education Policy Center at the University of Utah. And before we start, could you each give a brief introduction of yourself and what you are doing at the Education Policy Center and how you ended up there? If Andrea, if you would like to start. Sure. Um, I'm Andrea Rohr. I'm the director of the Utah Education Policy Center, um, also associate dean in the College of Education and a professor in the Department of Ed Leadership and Policy. I've been the director at the Utah Education Policy Center, which is a university-based research center since 2006, in addition to my other roles. And, and my name is Matt again. So I work at the Utah Education Policy Center. I'm the data scientist for the Education Policy Center. Um, I've been there for a little over a year and a half now and have served a lot of the different data analytics needs that the, the center does. Um, and yeah. And Andrea, could you describe briefly what the Utah Education Policy Center does? Certainly. Um, The Utah Education Policy Center, which was established in 1990, um, was intended to be a university research-based center focused exclusively on education issues in K-12 and higher education. Um, we reinvigorated the center um, after it went dormant briefly um, and reinvigorated it in 2006. And our sole mission is to bridge research, policy, and practice. So finding ways in education that bring research to bear on practice and decisions um, in ways that improve access and equity for students in the K-12 and higher ed environment. And for the people who are listening, maybe from Europe, K-12 is kindergarten to grade 12. So, Matt, could you describe the kind of data that you're using at the moment? Sure. So we look at a variety of different data sources. Uh, some of them are from surveys. Mm -hmm. So we get data like so students or teachers will sometimes fill out surveys, faculty members in different organizations. And so we'll collect data that way. We also get data that's more uh, from students, like from usage data for, for, for software, sometimes for outcome data. So like testing data, things like that to try to look at whether or not the student is improving over time or, or how, part, how a program might be impacting a student's mm -hmm. potential improvement. So those are our two primary data sources, which would be um, kind of finding out what's going on in a particular organization with the surveys and then kind of peeking under the hood with maybe more quantitative measures. Like uh, sometimes we'll have a partner that will send us some data. They'll, they'll send us like a CSV file or an Excel file, which they send us electronically and all secured. Mm -hmm. And then what we do, we'll take that and analyze 
analyze it for some of the outcomes. So those are the two primary types of data that we get are basically bit quantitative and also qualitative data that we get from a variety of different sources. Um, some, sometimes we will um, generate the data ourselves. So sometimes we'll go out and kind of get those metrics ourselves. And sometimes other places will collect them and then, and then send them to us for, for evaluation after we've signed data sharing agreements and all those kinds of things. Because there's a lot of... Um, so for those people that are more in, in business, they probably have a little less or a little less familiar with that. We have a lot of research uh, protocols that we have to follow, mm-hmm. like institutional review board. You'll probably hear the letters IRB come up at some point, which is kind of our um, how we use data that enforce how how we use it to to keep the data secure and to make sure that participants that are being evaluated are being treated fairly and equitably, and and that we, we that we use the data in, in proper manners for research. Mm-hmm. So you hear us talk th- about that. And I think I would add um, one way to think about the kinds of data that we get. It varies in terms of unit of analysis. So we have individual level data, we have um, program data, we'll have organizational data, we may have state level data. Um, Much of our analyses are based on either program level or state level analysis to inform what's going on. So Matt mentioned qualitative and quantitative, and we Mm -hmm. sort of situate survey data in the midst of that. Mm -hmm. Um, All of the data that we collect and utilize are driven by the research questions and or the evaluation or research questions that we have for particular projects. And so the the type of data we're going to deal with will vary based on the nature of that evaluation or research. Mm -hmm. So the data that you collect and that you get from from your partners, is that on one side, Matt, you mentioned test test data from standardized tests or exam data. Mm -hmm. And also, I would guess some student data on like the age ranges. Like demographic kind of information. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. What what else kind of data do you get? Like demographic? Those are the primary ones. So we get, if you want to categorize it, um, we have generally some type of demographic information. Um, We've mentioned students, but it's also um, educators, for example, or people who participate in a particular Mm -hmm. program, um, participants in that way. So you may have demographic data, you may have participation data, you would have some type of outcome data, some type of program, generally speaking, program implementation data, um, and then a variety of other kinds of outcome uh, and performance data. But it it may be things like whether or not a student was chronically absent, um, mobility, student mobility, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Great. About the privacy regulations, I would come to that Mm -hmm. in in a little bit, a little bit later, because I think that's quite interesting. What kind of problems do you encounter when collect- collecting the educational data? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Andre, do you want to get, do you want to start or should I go? Um, yeah, I think certainly. we don't have a lot of experience in dealing with data <laughs> problems. So. Um, there, are, there are certainly a variety of issues um, and opportunities that come up when we're looking at collecting data. Um, first, is, first and foremost is, I think, understanding when we might be brought into a project in order to evaluate or do research on it. And that has a direct implication for what kind of data are collected. Um, for instance, sometimes we're brought in towards the middle or end of a project and asked how how effective was it? And that's after the fact. So for example, you can't get participation data as readily done. Um, so there's the access and timing is an issue. Um, next would be the nature and ways in which data are collected by entities that we work with. Um, So how we would structure, or in our case, how Matt helps us 
structure our data collection tools is very different than how someone, for example, participating in a program says, oh, we have these attendance sheets. Um, so you want attendance data? Here are our sheets mm. where we would have set that up um, electronically to begin with and, and yeah. had methods in place for how to collect that data so that we get some consistency. And could you describe like the methods you just mentioned? Um, certainly. So, and I'm going to kick it off to Matt. I'll introduce and then mm. kick that off to Matt. Is when when we're looking to do research, let's say it's on the type of data that is new and we need to collect it, not the mm. kind that another agency like the State Board of Education or um, our Utah System of Higher Ed or Department of Workforce Services, not something they've already been collecting for years, um, but something that's new. What we have to decide, or what obviously, what are the parameters of the data we're going to need in order to do the research or the evaluation. And so part of that process is defining um, the bounds and the terms. And yeah. then, for example, if we say attendance, what does attendance mean? So having like a data dictionary um, is always important. And so for us, that process means establishing the parameters and then creating the system that we would give to the other entity in order to enter their data or to transfer their data. Mm -hmm. From that point, I'll, I'll hand it over to Matt to, to address further. Yeah, so, so we get data in a variety of different forms, as Andrea has pointed out, that sometimes we get data that has been previously collected and mm -hmm. we're asked to do an evaluation on it after the fact, which means sometimes we have to come back and negotiate with a partner and say, well, unfortunately, given you want to do a longitudinal study, and, and unfortunately, the way you collected it, we actually can't look longitudinally because you didn't collect it and you didn't put dates on it or... It's not aggregated at the appropriate level. So that puts us in a position of having to say, okay, well, we can't do what you're asking with it, but we maybe we can do something else. Let's start working out what we can actually do with it. So that's when we get data kind of retroactively. When we're, when we're looking to do something brand new, we get to kind of talk to the partners and see what's appropriate, what we can actually collect. And as Andre correctly pointed out, a lot of the people, since we work with a lot of school districts, the people that are working in these programs in school districts are not thinking, what is a data scientist going to need when they get this data. That's not the first thing that comes to their mind. What they're really excited about is they're excited about helping children that are in school get the most out of their program. Yeah. They're, help, they're interested in doing math tutoring or they're interested in, in trying to make sure kids have good after-school programs to go to. So what we do is we try to find some kind of balance between them putting tons of time into making great data and then also trying to find out some kind of compromise between them putting too much effort into that that might yeah. be a bit above their technical skill level in some cases, or maybe they don't have the information that we might really ideally want because they're not in a position to get it. Um, yeah. So we can't, so we have to figure out like, what do they, what do you have access to? What can we reasonably request? What would be burden and burdensome on a program to say that's, that's, that would be beautiful if we could get all that data, but mm -hmm. it's probably not going to happen. And then how can we use that to decide what kind of evaluation questions and what kind of things we're going to do statistically in, in the, to try to evaluate those programs. So it can be challenging for sure, especially especially given, like we said, that this isn't a website that we're going to that we built from ground up that some that some software company makes where they can kind of build any feature into track whatever they kind yeah. of ideally 
want. We're a bit at the mercy of kind of the realities on the ground of, of that this is this these are kind of dynamic situations that maybe don't lend themselves perfectly to data yeah. collection. Although I will say, I will add that um, part of our movement towards not only having statisticians on our staff, but actually adding data scientists is intentional because we do want to begin to shift the understanding of what data science can contribute in education and how yeah. using it can can help us explore not only predictive analytics, but also to have a better understanding of what actually is happening. Um, and as Matt noted, right now, people don't think about what kind of data they should be collecting. And again, back to our mission to bridge research policy and practice, part of what we want to do with our work using data science is change that so that people from the get-go actually are thinking about um, not necessarily whether they come to the policy center or not, the Utah Education Policy Center to work with, but if they're going to know how their programs are working and who is it helpful for and how can they improve it, what data do they need to be thinking about from the moment they design before they implement that they should have in place. It's a great point, Andrea. Like We actually have had a bunch of series of um, kind of workshops with some of our data partners where we, we try to kind of take the, the, the final product that we want and to kind of show the people where the data is going to go and how it's going to inform them. So it kind of, we, our goal at that point is to help them get invested in the whole process so that they can see where the, what, what the yeah. ultimate outcome is going to be. We've definitely found that that by itself can help make the, the overall quality of the analysis much better. Yeah. So you are getting the data from your data partners, which would be school districts, for example, some schools sometimes, or like some educational programs. And then you either get fairly good data and then you can work with it, or you go back to them and discuss what you can do or what you can't do. But ideally, you would be able to talk to them first and mm -hmm. design a way on getting the data in a way that you can actually work with. And you said you are working with your data partners in uh, sometimes beforehand, and then you do like a workshop, or is it just like a a meeting, a, a one-hour meeting where you mm -hmm. say, okay, that's your goal. We need that kind of data and we will do A, B, and C with that. So that's why you should collect it in XYZ way. I think that's probably where we get an intersection between data science as a field and my field of education starting to have some kind of merger yeah. or confluence is that it's rare that we would go in and simply, like for year one, if we were working with somebody and they said, these are the only data we have then we yeah. would have already talked through what it is they wanted from the evaluation or research. And we would say, well, given what you have, these are the questions we can answer this year. But going forward, we're going to need to collect new data. Um, and it may be qualitative or quantitative or survey data for as, as an example. Or because you want to answer these questions, we're going to have to take the data you have, we're going to, have to make other data requests, and then create a data set that we can utilize to, to answer other questions questions yeah. that way so it, it varies like which comes first in a sense and I, i think that that's maybe something that is people are, are, are kind of considering data science and some of the things of course a lot of times we get we get so focused on the modeling and kind of some of these really complex statistical techniques that can that can do amazing things it all means very little if the data is not good quality and isn't collected and yeah. frankly if your partners yeah. that you're working with aren't invested in the final outcome um, most a lot of these kind of examples of really cool machine learning algorithms. What they don't necessarily spend a lot of time talking about is the years worth of work it took 
to get the data set ready and collect it over potentially over years. And they even had a couple of times where they tried collecting it. They tried to use it for what they thought it was going to, it would do. It didn't create very good predictions. All of the failures leading up to ultimately what becomes a very successful algorithm that that can maybe classify something or can do this amazing prediction. All of the work that went just to get to the data to the point so it actually can be used for the things we actually want to do with it. It's kind of it as as if you probably heard the statistic 80% is like on the data gathering preparation, all of those things that I think that's a pretty good statistic. It might even be higher than that, especially like it's higher, (laughs) higher than that in some fields for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I bet that in your case, as you mentioned, Matt, that it's not a software where you can just track things easily, like fairly easily. It takes a lot of work, like you said, to get the data in the way you want it. And then also like consistently from all your sources. I I think that if I may, Jonas, I think that's been an important distinction for for myself and for the policy center in, in venturing in this new path. And it's highly aligned with what you see going on at the University of Utah and um, Mike Kirby's work and in, in, um, our senior vice president, uh, Dan Reed's work around the uh, informatics initiatives and in trying to promote data science is that it's about looking at your own field a little bit differently. And as we ventured into data science, coming out of, if you will, more the just pure research realm, um, yeah. you mentioned the word consistency. We didn't have consistency. And so you were often re- um, had to rely heavily on the documentation and the thoroughness of a statistician in order to replicate a study year to year um, or take someone else's study and replicate it in your own environment. And, and because of the way the nuances and almost interpretive nature of a statistician's way of putting together a data set, uh, asking yeah. questions after the fact became even more difficult. And I think what data science has brought for, for us in the center is not only the replicability, but the documentation, the understanding of how we might pursue other types of analysis than what we did in 2018-19, um, perspectives yeah. we had had not thought about in that way. So could you um, describe how a project looks like? I saw on your website you have like classical research reports, but you it seems like you also have different kind of projects. And if you could describe what they are, who they are with, and what the main output is. So the entities that generally the Policy Center is working with, we've, we've largely worked primarily in the state of Utah with in, um, education organizations or almost education allies. So individuals individual organizations, whether it be um, you, Utah After School Network, for example, or on campus, um, University Neighborhood Partners, we do research, evaluation, and actually technical assistance and coaching in schools. The how we work with them is first we we have a cycle. So we meet with the entity. We try to understand what it is their needs are, what questions, what primary questions do they have, and importantly, what do they want to do with what they learn from our partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, we enter all of these as a partnership. So our our organization made a purposeful choice in 2008 that we wouldn't be an entity that's simply hired to come in, do research evaluation, and hand over a report and walk away. 
So part of what you'll yeah. find in our work are the considerations and recommendations from the work that we're doing. So Matt mentioned earlier um, how to improve a particular program. When we have those first meetings and we're, we're outlining what it is they need, we make a determination at that point whether or not we can jump right to the research and evaluation or do we have to do some sort of pre, pre-work, which might be um, establishing logic models so we, we have a better understanding and they have a better understanding of both what yeah. they do and have, and then use that as the driver of the questions. And that data question, the what data, how are we going to use it? What are we going to do with it? That comes after we've yeah. established that foundation of what it is they want to know. Does that address your question? Yes, it okay. does. So um, what, what is a typical, typical question? So it's like one of them would be if the program that you did succeeded in the goal it had? And is the, the deliverable then a project report? So first of all, the outcomes are, are generally quite varied. Um, though frequently mm-hmm. people want to know whether or not, if it's in the, the K-12 environment, um, the kindergarten to 12th grade, we generally are asked questions about, did it help students um, Im- improve their performance on a standardized test? Did it help and promote their learning in some way? And that learning is measured by different indicators. Did it help with persistence in a particular content area like STEM? Um, or did it create more pathways, opportunities for them into post-secondary ed? So that's an example. Those are yeah. examples of the kind of outcomes. So I'll, I'll kind of maybe try to compare and contrast maybe what, a, what a, a typical business might actually do and then kind of maybe kind of compare that to what we would do to give, since people, what we do is fairly different than that. So in a business, yeah. for example, somebody goes to a particular website um, and, and they may buy a product or something like that. So we might look at the demographics of the person that's on the website. We might build a large statistical model that's a, that controls for their demographics, maybe their gender, maybe their age, if we know that kind of information, their prior buying habits. And then we can predict using that information whether or not the person's likely to buy this other product. Maybe we're going to try to, that's the outcome for the businesses. We might try to market a particular product to this person, or we might try to offer an incentive to them to try to get them to buy a particular product. At the policy center, it's very different. Clearly, we don't want to predict whether a student is going to pass or fail. Our ultimate goal isn't to try to predict for a particular student. And it wouldn't be appropriate anyway. We wouldn't we wouldn't go into the classroom and then say, okay, student, we think you're going to fail. So then we're going to do this particular intervention. It, it, it's a very different need. But what we might still do that's kind of synonymous with what we would have done in business is controlling for their demographic information, for their age, for socioeconomics, Uh, status for different things that we know about that student. Can we see how people are doing compared to other groups? Can we see how the program, potentially once we control for all those other variables, is the program itself having maybe some kind of effect? We can't say that it's the Mm -hmm. cause. And that's very different, I think, in this kind of inference-based idea versus what a a business, they wouldn't really care what the cause is as long as the model is is accurate, right? If I can predict something, we don't really care which of those features necessarily necessarily the yeah. ones that are, are causing the output. But what we do, yeah. so what we do a lot differently is we we want to know what the causes are. That's what we're really focused on. We want to know what particular, um, depending on what your uh, favorite term of the day is, feature, covariate, variable, which variables, which features are the most 
most yeah. important ones that are going to impact. And, and when we control for those, what kind of what kind of differences and nuances can we suss out when we start looking at things? So um, what we end up writing about, as Andrea pointed out, is that once we kind of get that model and we can kind of start understanding how these different features relate to each other, we we spend time writing and kind of using prior research to, ex- to explain and justify why a particular way of interpreting that outcome, that, that data, makes sense because of prior research has said that these particular things together seem to, to indicate that something is going to happen with a student like these are the these are the things that we know from prior research um so very different uh, avenues we don't try to predict anything our outcome is more kind of a holistic understanding of what's going on than a business would try to do yeah and i i think that what's important in that and again it's back to in a sense trying to inform and shape the field of education and how we utilize data is there are like we do have studies where we look at um what's put in place what do we predict would make a difference mm-hmm. then we try a new intervention we study that there are there are many of those yeah. studies and and we can do some yeah. of those um but we want to expand the use of data and part of the the way to do that in our field in education is to begin by creating data sets of data that otherwise you would not have had the ability to put together. Mm. And so that kind of modeling that we do in the center and what we've expanded doing has allowed us to, to speak with the education environment in ways that promotes new change that we wouldn't have been able to see um, or that would be more happen chance than, than what we currently have. Yeah. Okay. So your goal is to some extent also to have the programs and see, for example, where they work best. We talked earlier about privacy and I think especially in education it is really important to keep data private, especially like um, the performance data in from students and the, the, the possibility to identify a student based on like even anonymized data. So I would be interested in how you are handling that. Sure, I can, I can talk about, about that briefly and then I'm sure Andrea can fill yeah. in some more. So I think one thing to, to note about um, data privacy is that there's there's different levels, right? There's the data that kind of comes in when we're talking about the collection method, making sure the collection is secure, the transmission to us, making sure that is secure, making sure we have good policies in place for training for our employees to make sure they understand good research practices. And then all the way to, well, how do we use it in the report correctly? Uh, there's There are things that, for example, a really good example, I think, is is that we report on different subgroups. We talked about different demographics that we, we report on. And there's a trade-off to those things. If There's been some really interesting research in the, in the state of California that if in certain cases, what we do is we'll say N less than 10 in our report, mm-hmm. meaning we got so few respondents that to try to give a percentage would be kind of misleading if we said, oh, we got 60%. It's like, it's really only, you know, three out of three out of four people would be 75%, right? And but so we, we're not going to say, we'll give usually the sample size to kind of give it an idea of what statistical power is behind that. But then we obfuscate that data if it gets too small. But like I was saying about the state of California, they've done some really interesting studies that show that different levels of hiding that data um, affects different groups in different ways, right? So some, some smaller, less represented groups, if you hide the data too much in certain subgroups, then you start losing some insight into what happens to very small groups that are underrepresented in a given school. So yeah. you can maybe, you can impact 
um, minorities, unfortunately, sometimes by, by hiding that data so the outcomes don't become as visible for what's happening to them as for these more majority groups. So like yeah. in, in Utah, uh, we, we have a, a lot of um, predominantly white students. So we have to be we have to kind of be thinking very thoughtfully about when we aggregate data and when we obfuscate it and what are the implications for not only the outcome in the report, um, but also for the subgroups that we're trying to keep that their their information private. Yeah. But we also want to if there's a if there's an outcome that's for a particular set of population that we want to really kind of focus in on that subgroup. What we'll do is we'll look at different layers of aggregation. Like at what layer can we still tell the story without having to hide the data mm-hmm. and essentially not tell a story about it? So it's kind of a trade-off between, uh, n- never a trade-off as far as good institutional review practices, but saying, well, at what level of aggregation can we get down there where we're still telling a good story without potentially um, violating anyone's privacy? Mm-hmm. Which is why in a lot of our cases, so we may start, um, in a sense, the focus is on the student, but we may not be able to report at a school level. We may only be able to report at a district level, mm-hmm. or we may not be able to report for one particular program, but we can report for all of the programs. And so we generally look at rolling up. Um, part of the precursor to all of this, again, we reinvigorated the center in 2006, was venturing into the space. So parallel to the industry, if you will, ramping up issues around data privacy and data security, et cetera, and that become all data becoming more vulnerable mm. than it had been previously. Um, what happened in my own field is that there were federal and state regulations that started changing pretty rapidly about yeah. what how data could be used, when it could be used, who could have access to it, for what purposes could they have access to it. And in general, though it's this, I wouldn't make a blanket statement, um, in, in general, one can only get access to these kinds of data if you make these agreements on the front end. So in all cases, we enter into these partnerships for research evaluation or technical assistance. We also have in place data share agreements. And so those data sharing agreements will then attend to what are the federal, state, and or agency um, policies, regulations, Mm. protocols, in addition to what, as a university-based research center, what do we need to adhere to? Um, You know, so often we'll have a client say, but um, for instance, it doesn't matter that it's less than 10, I still want to know. And we have the opportunity at that point to talk about um, not only protection of mm. a particular group of students, but also what does it mean if they did have access to it? Um, and so one of the things we try and emphasize is that whatever we do, one should never be able to identify the person, that the yeah. educator or the student or yeah. the, you know, the, the program at the University of Utah. Like you may know the general category, but you wouldn't know a specific slice of that based on, on what data are available. So the data security, data privacy has um, required us to change a lot of our own protocols, including 
what kinds of servers we have, um, the stipulations about how we receive and or send data. Yeah. Um, Matt mentioned uh, protocols for our staff. So when everybody comes in, they sign non-disclosure agreements, they go through additional training, they all have to be approved by the Institutional Review Board to be honor studies. Um, and then when someone leaves, it is, it's a similar process. Um, what they they can't, you know, they can't take any data for any project with them, but even ways that they can talk about the data um, or having been part of a study is also part of our, our exit um, plan, I guess, that we have. So to at the end now, I would, I would be interested in your take on using student data to determine curriculums and to determine their study path. And what kind of data I'm referring to here is, for one, data, uh, data generated by assessments like exams, if they're standardized or like regular uh, exams, also on data generated by subjective evaluations through teachers or some other um, person that evaluates students in like a, they need to write something or they need yeah. to say it was good, medium or bad, how they performed. And then lastly um, the data collected through potential study apps that the student might use and how they perform and data might there be like how quickly do they go through the exercises and how often do they get something wrong before they get it right jonas i think you've um, identified what is really the future of our field um, in terms of research um, which may be why you asked that um, because we are utilizing a lot of um, what one would consider objective assessment data that are available when it's standardized for groups. Mm. Um, so in the K-12 environment, or if you look in post-secondary ed, um, maybe you may have had to have taken the GRE for grad school or something of that nature. Unfortunately, the GMAT, but unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, and we go into the use of those types of um, or labeled as um, the more objective assessments, knowing what the pros and cons are of those, how they were collected, how they were developed, um, yeah. who they discriminate against. Um, you know, in particular, uh, a lot of the standardized tests tend to be uh, discriminate against people of color or students who have grown up um, with less financial resources mm -hmm. in their environment, uh, as examples, or certain yeah. geographic resources. Regions. Um, so we go in fully knowing and disclosing what those are. When we look at um, other types of data, you mentioned, for example, apps or more subjective data, maybe observational data. Mm -hmm. um, again, another reason to integrate data science into the field of education is all of this is becoming more common in our field at the student level, mm -hmm. at the educator level, at the organization, the school level, um, and even in higher ed, um, maybe even more so um, as it enters the field. Um, as professors gamify some of their classes, for example, what do we learn at the University of Utah um, Canvas? The kinds mm -hmm. of um, analytics that we get from Canvas to let us know whether students are, are persisting um, or having difficulty in classes or not accessing materials. Um, COVID and the pandemic have created um, interesting opportunities for us to real-time explore 
what we know about how utilization of other platforms yeah. or other mediums are actually impacting what how children are learning, what they're learning, and how they can demonstrate what they're learning in the K-12 environment. And I suspect very similarly in the post-secondary environment. Mm -hmm. And so um, we're, I would say that we are on, um, we've got our toe in the water, but we haven't fully immersed because that hasn't been made available. Um, in our state in particular, in Utah, there are a number of uh, state regulations in place that entities that are working with students where they do have an app um, on their multiple devices, um, they are those entities are actually prohibited from sharing that data with anybody else. And so, okay. yeah. so I think we're going to have to see simultaneous tracks and people talking together, not at one another, about the developers of these kinds of technologies, talking with the educational institutions about what it is they want to know and co-creating research that's going to inform what the, the folks in practice are doing, working with policymakers who can, who rightfully so are putting in, in guidelines that mitigate risks to the individual short-term and long-term mm. and can also then provide information to inform, um, as you noted, to help determine what kinds of supports, for example, are put in place for um, students or educators or post-secondary students, uh, adults returning to post-secondary ed in ways that make the technology a, a means to support, not just a means to a result. Matt, what do you think? So, so you were kind of asking specifically about like like software use and and outcomes on student on student data or like yes so especially like the idea of um having for example the gmat and going th through the pain of preparation on it and being like yeah i might not get the score that i i hope i get but i also know i'm not dumb so um especially like in that that the that the gmat score might not um mirror the ability of a student um and the GMAT as an example, because at least yeah. in Germany, standardized tests are not that common to um, like they're not like in I, I, I feel like in, in the US, they're like mm -hmm. in every grade or in every other oh, yeah. grade. No, every like grade. Every grade, there are like standardized mm -hmm. tests and back, back home, it is not that intense. And then also like having experienced uh, subjective evaluations from teachers of maybe of, of me or like some peers, but also of me subjectively evaluating a teacher that I didn't like and be like, oh, that's a bad teacher, but he might be a good teacher, but I just don't like him for what reason ever. And um, yeah. that data is like, I, I, I do data science, so I think data is important and, and can help a lot of things, but it can also be biased or might not be the, the right data when you look at, for example, the GMAT, that it might not be the, the data that shows the actual ability. And especially in education, I feel like it's, it's hard, but also important. What is your take on using that kind of data? So I, I would say that like a, a, a funny thing in statistics is to say all models are wrong, but some are useful, right? Um, what's I think worth noting about that is that we at the center on a on a good evaluation, if we can from the beginning, we try to get multiple different points of data that if they start agreeing, we okay. realize we're we're telling a consistent story yeah. because we we also understand that certain certain data points are going to be biased and they yeah. aren't going to be totally objective. Um, we can't just go to a, a teacher that has students getting high grades and say, well, what are you doing? You must be doing the right thing. Because clearly your students are getting the right high grades. 
it's not necessarily causation. So what we try to do, with, I think, with a lot of our evaluation and frankly, a lot of our, the statistical analysis we do is we try to look at it from many different angles and see if we're starting to see a kind of a common, consistent theme. That's why the surveys end up being so important, because we kind mm-hmm. of look at it, things qualitatively. What are people saying about this thing? What's their kind of overall impression of it? And then can we back that up with other quantitative measures, such as state education um, assessment data, if we're looking at um, standardized scores or things like that? If we see different things and they're all starting to tell the same story, then we can start saying there might be something here. But looking at it from one particular lens often doesn't doesn't give us the full picture and can very well be biased. So I think for this we at the center take looking at it through all those lenses very seriously. And it's worth, as Andrea can point out, all of our researchers are trained in, in multiple different ways to do that kind of analysis. Yeah. Yeah. So from the very beginning, we start saying, well, okay, if I'm going to poke holes in that idea that this, these two things are related, how would I do that? And then can we, can we find a way to fill those holes with some other potential evaluation idea that will help us explain why that thing is actually happening? So uh, it's always important, I think, with any descriptive statistics or modeling or, or, or survey information, whatever data you're collecting, is collect, collect it from as many different sources you can yeah. and see if, they, if, there, if there's a common theme that emerges. Yeah, great. And to wrap up our conversation, do you have any tips for anyone who tries to get data out of a not ideal source? Like, for example, a local business that tries to get data or someone who works with somebody else who gives them the data? Do you have any um, tips on how to collect data in the offline world? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so the first thing I would do is 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 go online and find out what other people are, do, are doing and, and the, some of the struggles. So, yeah. we, we start almost all of our research with research on the research, which is we go to the, we see what other people have done and see what has been fruitful for them. Because um, most people, we're, we don't need to reinvent the wheel, right? A lot of these things are yeah. are, are kind of building good research builds on other research. Yeah. So. If you're going to do that yourself, go out and find what what has been successful for other people, and don't just don't just try things kind of willy nilly. Don't just kind of go out and make it up as you go, because probably you can learn from what other people where other people have made their mistakes. Yeah. Um, and once you know that, and you know what's been successful, then um, working with your partners to really identify what the ultimate goal is and mm-hmm. where they really want the research to go. Um, and where, what, what kind of story they're looking to tell, what kind of analysis they're looking to have. Having those two things together, I think, gives you a really clear idea of what data we need to tell the story that we, we, we think we want to tell. And then you can start thinking about how you get the data when, you, when we think, for example, about the attendance example from, from earlier. If you know what, when it counts as, as attendance and then you can, discuss, like, can think about, yeah, should I write it on a sheet of paper? Should I put it directly in a, like an Excel sheet or um, how that goes? Yeah. Um, I think I would add, I'm going to start actually because of Matt's response with what I think is maybe one of the the most important parts of this, particularly for like education entities um, who are doing this kind of work in part because Matt just exemplified it. Um, I would say the number one thing is hire highly skilled staff who can Mm -hmm. lead. Um, That's what Matt is for us, right? Um, He, when we started this initiative a few years ago, um, we had somebody who helped us jumpstart it. And then as that person left and and Matt was coming in, um, it was important for us not to hire who we needed today, but hire who would take us into the future. 
And so hire a highly skilled person who can lead. Second, I would say create a diverse methodological team. (laughs) So people who have content expertise and who have methodological expertise that are a little bit different, similar Mm -hmm. and overlap some proactive redundancy there, but also who can complement one another. Um, Third, and Matt alluded to this as well, um, is work with your partners to find out not only what they need, but what they have available and go in with the mindset that it's about building capacity and that you have to be patient while building capacity to get where they want to go. And then being strategic in the kinds of data that you are going to collect and analyze while meeting the needs of the partners you have in this kind of work. Great. Absolutely. Having a variety of like to kind of jump onto what Andre was saying there, having a variety of different perspectives of of how to tell that story um, and and have the data be useful is going to be really important. If you have just a statistician, they can can crunch numbers and maybe generate great models. But if you don't have domain experts that know what's important and what good research says, so if you're in a healthcare company, you're probably going to the nurses and to the doctors. If If you're in education, you're going to the people that are doing research and education. If you're in a business that sells a particular product, finding the person that knows a lot about that product and maybe the marketing team, having a, a, a good variety of different perspectives really keeps everybody from, from maybe having kind of blinders on and going down a particular path that isn't, isn't necessarily the, the right one to do. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time. And yeah. where can people find out more about the Utah Education Policy Center and your work? Um, certainly. Um, they can reach us at uh, uepc.utah.edu is our mm-hmm. website and has our contact information there. Um, and we're happy to, to find new collaborators and people who want to engage with us in the dialogue around uh, not only data science, but education research and how to improve education. Yeah, if, you're, if people are, after listening to this are interested in reading some of our reports, a lot of our reports are published online on our reports and publications page. And they can go there and read. Uh, we have PDFs there of all of, with graphs and explanations um, about all the different types of evaluations that we've done over the years. And um, yeah, we'd love to get feedback from people if they're interested in that research. Great. I'm going to link that in the show notes and also both of your LinkedIn profiles. So whoever wants to talk more about that can reach out to you if they like. And yeah, thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for a new episode of Somewhat Overfitting. Thanks again to Andrea and Matt for being on the show. Highlights of today's show were the insights into the challenges of offline data collection and the handling of highly sensitive private data. Let me know what you thought about this episode on somewhatoverfitting.com. There you can also find today's show notes. If you have something to say about data science and digital transformation, visit somewhatoverfitting.com slash guest and fill out the form. I'm always looking for interesting conversations. The theme song is from Bobby Rands and is called Jungles. Thanks again for listening and see ya. <laughs>